Heavenly Father, we come in the name of Jesus. We thank you that, as Luke says, the Dr. Luke, uh, in his, his gospel narrative, um, that you're a gracious Father who delights in giving your children good gifts. Mostly there he's talking about the gift of your spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come, that you would speak to us this morning, that you would open up our minds. God, we get so narrow-minded, so narrowly focused in on, and so preoccupied with our, our headaches and our heartaches and our troubles and our sorrows that, God, we forget to lift our gaze, to lift our vision to you, to look at Jesus, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the cosmic king of the universe. So, God, would you lift up our gaze, lift up the gaze of our hearts and give us spiritual eyes to see, give us ears to listen, and give us hands that are and feet that are ready to respond, to return to our first love, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, um, I don't know if you've ever uh, been uh, at a church where they taught through the book of Revelation. But as uh, James, our other elder, and I were kind of talking about the Lenten season and preparing for this uh, series, uh, James is like, man, I got some Revelation baggage. He said, I grew up in a church where things just got weird when it came to the book of Revelation. And, and even myself, I, I didn't grow up in church, but I became a Christian. And every, every once in a while, we didn't usually teach Revelation on Sunday mornings because I think there were like too many like normal people there. But like we would really geek out on what was called like eschatology and, and kind of uh, the, this really a focus in the book of Revelation was to look at it as merely talking about the end times. And it would usually be accompanied by like prophecy charts, if you're familiar with that, like all these different views, and in an attempt to essentially look at what's happening now and to decode all these symbols and to say, this is what God's doing right now. And it usually ended with the dragon or the beast being whatever, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a, a kind of a politically conservative church. Usually whoever, whatever sitting president was in that was uh, not conservative was the Antichrist. And so the end is upon us. And, uh, and, and so, you know, I too have some baggage. And I want to explain why we're teaching through the book of Revelation. Why this book Right now, I find it fascinating as I was looking out um, on the internet the last couple weeks, so many churches right now are actually teaching through the book of Revelation. One of my favorite commentators um, says about the book of Revelation that's probably one of the more uh, content, most contemporary helpful books in the Bible. It speaks a word to us right now in the midst of everything we find ourselves experiencing. And I think it especially has a word for us as the church in this moment, that's why we're calling this the Apocalyptic Church series. There's so much confusion right now when it comes to the church, right? And, and you listen to people, you turn on the news, and people are just railing on the church. There's so much cynicism towards the church. Even within the church, there's a lot of fear and anxiety in the season that we're experiencing. And the book of Revelation actually can be used and taught to exacerbate and amplify that sense of fear and anxiety, to approach the world from a posture of fear and anxiety. There are lots of voices talking about right now what's wrong with the church, talking about the future of the church. Is the church falling apart? Is the church imploding? The church is gonna go away. It's becoming irrelevant. And so what I, what I want us to hear in this series, what we want to invite you into is to cut through all of that confusion, to cut through all those voices of cynicism and doubt and despair, 
and, and to give us a desperately needed sense of clarity. And that's what apocalypse is all about. It's about clarity, not confusion. And, and what John wants us to see, what we want to see in this series, is that there's only one voice that really matters when it comes to diagnosing the church. It's the voice of Jesus. And we're going to be drawn back to that voice time and time again as we read through the book of Revelation. It's to listen to the voice of Jesus. What does Jesus think about the church? Frankly, I don't really care what the latest pundit or the latest deconstructionist leaving the church thinks about the church. What I care about is what does Jesus think about the church? Thankfully, he tells us. I mean, that's the book of Revelation in a nutshell, and these, these messages in chapters two and three in a nutshell is that Jesus wants to speak a word to the church. And the question is, are we listening? Are we listening? And, and what I want us to just derive from this is not just clarity, but a sense of hopefulness. We need hope right now as a church more than probably any other virtue at any other time in history. We need the hope of the resurrection to be real to us. And that's what this book does is it recenters the church on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus while facing the harsh realities of life. And in chapters two and three, the harsh realities of urban life in a polarized time. We see the same things happening in the book of Revelation. They're perennial issues. There's nothing new to conspiracy theories. You guys know that, right? There's nothing new to conspiracy theories. There's, there's nothing new to fear and anxiety. Polarization is not new. Idolatry, political idolatry, cultural idolatry and injustice, not new. Nationalism and civil religion, not new. Sexual immorality, not new. Compromise, it's not new. So they're facing the same realities that we are and there's an invitation to be a disciple of Jesus, to find joy and hope and clarity in the midst of the brutality, confusion, and anxiety of the culture around us. So I want to invite you to read with me Revelation chapter 2 as we step into this series. We're just going to be focusing on these seven churches here. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 is where we begin. This is what John writes to the church, churches, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. And found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you. And I will remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. Yet this you have, you, would hate, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. 
It's the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So just a little context. Uh, I don't want to do too much here because last Easter, um, we taught on Revelation chapter 1. That was our Easter text last year. Now, um, I was reminded of how uh, maybe some of you don't remember that. Even my own family, I was talking to you about Revelation this week, and they're like, you preached on that last year? So don't feel bad if you don't remember, okay? No offense. Um, and a couple of years ago, and it's in our archives, we taught on the book of Ephesians. And we gave a whole message on, if you want to learn more about the church at Ephesus, uh, its founding, its genesis, its kind of origin story can be found in Acts chapter 19. Uh, and, and then into Acts chapter 20, there's more information that I think really gives you a backdrop of what's happening here in chapter 2. But just, let me give you just high-level context of the book of Revelation for those who are New. The book of Revelation, the genre, is actually given to us. We don't have to guess as we do in other books, like is this symbolic or not. Uh, John actually tells us at the very beginning of the letter, uh, the prologue, Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to read this to you again, just so you can see it. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this book is what, it falls into the genre of what we might call apocalyptic, prophetic literature, and it's specifically an apocalyptic, prophetic letter. It's a circular letter. Now, um, again, let me just explain this, because the idea of apocalyptic prophetic would have been very common to the Jewish mind. This is a genre that originated in Jewish literature, um, and, and this word apocalypse just simply means like, there's a whole, you know, there's like a whole genre right now of apocalyptic literature. There was an article in the New York Times, like where people are reading in the pandemic, like all this bizarre end times type uh, apocalyptic literature. That's not what apocalyptic exactly means in the New Testament and in the Bible. Apocalypse just simply means revelation. It means unveiling. It's like pulling back a curtain on reality. So it's not escaping reality um, through decoding all these words so that we can kind of be kind of pulled out of reality and live in an alternate reality. No, it's, it's actually an invitation to experience a deeper reality. So the genre uh, you see it in places like Daniel, and this imagery is all throughout the book of Revelation. 500 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. And books like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah uh, kind of show up prominently here. There's symbolic numerology. So all of these numbers are symbolic. They mean something. And so when these numbers come up, we need to pay attention. They're not codes to be deciphered. They're actually invitations to wholeness. That's that to, to a kind of tactile wholeness. The counting of numbers is about wholeness, not deciphering secret messages from God. And, and, and a lot of the imagery, it's full of, you know, dragons and beasts. I mean, it reads like a, a, a fiction novel, like some kind of dystopian fiction novel, but it's really cool. This stuff is taken specifically from the propaganda of the Roman Empire. Astrology, that would have been widely known in the Roman Empire, Folk religion that would have been widely known from the surrounding Roman kind of social and religious and political context. So he's drawing on Old Testament imagery, 
astrology, folk mythology in the Roman Empire, and he's drawing it all together. And what he's seeking to do is really two things. Apocalyptic literature seeks to do two things. One is to set the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. It's to say, let's look back on and draw together all of these themes from the past and God's working in the past. Let's look forward to the future now and let's that, let that reality of what's to come impinge on us right now in the present as we live in this middle space. It's, it's, living, in light of the, it's living in the present in light of both our past and our future. And it's also to set the present in light of the invisible realities of the present. There is a deeper reality than what we can experience with our five senses. Any of you that are physics teachers, science teachers know quantum theory has illuminated us to something that the Bible has known for generations. There is a world that we cannot see that is every bit as real as what we can experience with our five senses. And so he's saying, if you open yourself up to the transcendent and you can see as God sees, you would see a world that is deeply, deeply full of the presence and the power of God in the midst of the uncertainty and the anxiety. And so it's opening up another layer of reality. It's to go from three-dimensional to 100-dimensional and to experience the fullness of this reality. And that's the idea of prophecy is to declare reality. It's not to always predict some future event as much as it is to say, this is how God sees reality. Thus saith the Lord about where we are and where we're heading. And it's a letter. The whole book of Revelation is actually a circular letter written to these seven churches. So it's not, as some people like to say, seven letters written to seven churches. It's actually seven prophetic messages written to these seven churches, but one circular letter that would have been given to the church at Ephesus and then run around, because geographically, if you look at a map of the ancient world, geographically, these churches were located on a Roman imperial postal route in Asia Minor that, that formed a circle from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum and Thyatira and all the way around the circle. There's a geographic thing that's happening here. And so this is a message to all the churches And then symbolically, this idea of seven, again, is the idea of wholeness. Seven in the Bible speaks to wholeness. What he's saying here is, this is a message for all the churches. The seven churches are representative of all churches in all times, in all places. No one church has the full full story or the full gifts No one church is experiencing all the temptations. We need each other and we need this timeless word that circulates throughout the churches. And this forms a prologue for the book of Revelation. In other words, what happens in chapters one, two, and three show up in the rest of the book, but just in more detail and with more graphic imagery. So we have essentially kind of the the prophecy or the sermon here up front. And then we have all of this illustrative material throughout the book of Revelation that references back to chapters one, two, and three. All right, done nerding out there. But I think it's important that you understand. We have to recognize what John was saying to these churches first before we extrapolate to what God is saying now 
And that's the mistake that people often make with Revelation is they start with now and want to read back into Revelation or they start with the past and leave it in the past and say, well, that doesn't apply to us now. No, it is a word to the churches then that is applicable to all churches in all times and all places, though the situation may be a little bit different. The book is written by the Apostle John, one of Jesus' closest disciples and friends during his time on earth. And it's written in exile. He tells us there in chapter one, he's been exiled for the faith, likely as a political prisoner on the island of Patmos, which is about 10 miles off the coast of modern day Turkey. John writes this book as a prophet who's intoxicated with a vision of Jesus. He's caught up with God in heaven. I mean, this is a God-intoxicated book. It is all about God from start to finish. How does God see reality? How does God see the church? How does God see evil in the world? How does God see suffering? How does God see the life of Jesus? And the message of John is, as I see Jesus, who I see is the cosmic king of history. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That preposition there, of, can also mean through or by. It, it, like literally, it's like, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation about Jesus Christ. It's the revelation through Jesus Christ. In other words, from beginning to end, this book is about Jesus by Jesus. Jesus is the goal of the Christian life. He's the agent for transforming the Christian life. John writes as a prophet to say, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Secondly, he writes as a poet. Poets uh, don't give us necessarily new content in the Bible. The, the genre of poetry, and particularly in the Revelation, there's nothing new here in the book of Revelation, but there's a new way of saying it where he combines imagery and themes together that are woven from Genesis to uh, Revelation that are intended to revive our imagination for God. That's the idea of poetry is it says it in a fresh way. It's intended to shock us. It's intended to wake us up and use not just propositional truths, but to engage our imagination. That's why a lot of right brain people hate the book of Revelation. Like, no offense, but like attorneys and CPA and buttoned up types, it makes them nervous. That's why they don't read fiction because it engages our imagination. That's terrifying. But it's also compelling. I mean, I've been reading, uh, one of my favorite authors, may surprise some of you when I was a kid, was Stephen King. I was a big Stephen King, dark novels. And I don't know why I was drawn to dark novels, but I've been reading uh, Stephen King's excellent book, one of the best books on writing. It's called On Writing. And in the book on writing, I was reading this last night, he talks about his biography and kind of how he became a writer. And, and he went through a period, many people don't know this about Stephen King, he went through a period of deep, deep alcohol addiction and drug addiction. Some of his best novels, my favorite Stephen King novels, Carrie, his first big hit, smash hit novel, Cujo, Tommyknockers, okay, some of you guys have no idea what I'm talking about, Google it later. Um, these novels were written while he was just completely out of his mind. Misery was a book about a nurse who holds a, who holds a writer hostage. And he goes on to talk about it. He's like, these were, these were ways that in my mind I was making sense of my addiction. And it, it has a way of grabbing you when it's, when it's using these, these metaphors and symbols. Like addiction is like a nurse that has you trapped in a room and is forcing you to write 
Addictions like these aliens and tommyknockers that get into your brain and tommyknock around and give you all kinds of supernatural abilities while eating away your soul. I mean, that's what good fiction does. It rebuilds our imagination. That's why we love Tolkien. That's why we love Lewis. And John writes as a poet to revive our imagination for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And then John finally writes as a pastor. He's a pastor writing to particular groups of people. Suffering just like them. He says, I'm your brother in suffering and tribulations. Writing to particular groups of people in particular places with particular struggles. Now there's a pattern to the way that the letters, the the prophetic messages go in these seven uh, messages. So let me just show you the pattern and then we'll just walk through this quickly here uh, for the church of Ephesus. It starts, everyone pretty much starts with this pattern with a few exceptions of a vision of Christ. And then Jesus, like a good kind of bishop uh, who's walking among his churches or kind of a, um, a spiritual director, He's walking through his churches and he gives an affirmation. I know what you're doing. I see what you're doing and it's good. Keep doing it. He wants to build confidence and saying, I see what you're doing. Keep on doing that. And then in each of the letters, he then moves to correction and saying, yeah, you're doing this well, but I have this against you. I hate that you're doing this in some cases, he'll say. I don't hate you, but I hate that you're doing this. Then there's an invitation to wholeness. Let he who has ears to hear Hear what the Spirit has to say. There's a a Spirit-led wholeness that Jesus invites us to experience in his power and his presence. And then there's a promise. The the vision of Jesus is taken most of the time from the chapter one description of Jesus as the cosmic king. And then all of the promises, you'll notice, come from chapters 19 to 22, taken right out of the end of the book in reference to the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth that God is bringing down to the earth at the end of time. It's really cool especially if you're an English literature person. So let's walk through this and talk about what Jesus has to say to the church of Ephesus here, just for a few minutes. He starts his message, and he says to the church at Ephesus, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, just stop right there. That is so cool. Like, I'm not one to get into, like, angels and demons too much, but it, like this is scripture. And again, I know it's not literal, but like there's evidence in the book of Daniel, chapter 10, for instance, and other, well, this probably comes from, that there's guardian angels surrounding God's church. Like I used to think that was so weird when people would talk like that, like you have guardian angels. He says, to the angel, speak these words to John. And then John, you speak to these words to the church. Just as in the book of Daniel, God has assigned guardian angels over nations and people groups. You can read about it in Daniel chapter 10. I believe that God has also assigned guardian angels over the congregations of his disciples, making sure that the messages, the truth of God gets told and retold faithfully and that the congregation is guarded. I just think that's cool. All right, moving on. To the angel of the church in Ephesus. Again, he speaks to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus because it's the first stop geographically and it's the most influential of the seven cities home to some of the ancient wonders, seven ancient wonders of the world there, the temple of Artemis. And it's also the most influential of the seven churches. Jesus, many people believe Jesus' mother, Mary, was actually a member of this congregation. And what we see in Ephesus, which I think is so instructive for us, is that here's a church that's less than 50 years old. 
And it's beginning to enter a phase of decline and eventually death. So Jesus speaks a word here to the church and he says, let me affirm you. So let's go through this. He, he affirms them. He says, I know what you're doing. I know your works. And he points out a couple different things. He says, I see your hard work. I see your toil. This is like the word for strenuous and exhausting labor. I see how exhausted you are laboring in my name. You're an energetic church that serves, that, 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 that is serving with all of your heart, all of your strength. You're laying it out there. He says, I see your perseverance, your patient endurance in the midst of suffering. This is a church that's suffering deeply because of their love for Jesus. This idea of persevering or endurance, patient endurance, is this inner attitude of long suffering. It's a characteristic of God himself mentioned throughout scripture. Patient endurance of hardship. I mean, we have no idea. It's hard for us to imagine how difficult it would have been to be a disciple of Jesus in the Roman Empire. Again, surrounded by civil religion, imperial cults, idolatry, temples, nationalism. I mean, this is baked into your family from the time you're little. You go to festivals together. You say certain pledges together. You do things as a family. So imagine becoming a disciple of Jesus as a parent and being completely thrown out by your children or coming to Christ as a child, being completely thrown out. It's the closest thing I can uh, you know, kind of analogize it to now would be like if you came to Christ and you're in India or Pakistan and you grew up in a Hindu or Buddhist family and you're put out and threatened with death. I mean, that's the closest thing to be a Christian was to engage in a constant act of sedition. To say Jesus is Lord, not Caesar. And it had all kinds of implications for your just day in and day out life. Where you ate food, where you shopped your family relationships. I mean, we're experiencing some of this tension right now on a very small scale. Businesses would lose money. So he's saying you're doing a good job persevering and suffering. Holiness, he commends them for their holiness. He's saying you, you refuse to participate in idolatry. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which is the Nicolaitans were essentially, we'll look more at this in weeks to come, they were essentially um, kind of like a, a syncretistic uh, civil religion. They thought you could have Christianity plus you could have the imperial cult. He says you refuse to participate in cultural idolatry. You refuse to give yourself to immorality. You remain set apart and devoted to me in the midst of all of this prostitution happening, in the midst of all of this um, violence happening. He also commends them, fourthly, on their doctrine. You, you are those, he says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. You're, you're a church that can call evil, evil. You're not afraid to say this is false and this is not true. You're devoted to the truth. This is a truth church. And friends, doctrine's good. We should love doctrine. There's nothing wrong. Like I know we live in an age that tells us that we should be tolerant of everything, that doctrine's narrow-minded, that the dogmatic are you know, kind of to be excluded and canceled. But the reality is we all have doctrine, right? Like I live in, I live in Broderpool. I live in Butler Tarkington. Now I walk around my neighborhood almost every day when it's not negative 20 degrees outside. 
And it's amazing to me, like, we live in a time where people are putting out signs in their yards that say, like, non-Christians, not, not Jesus followers, like, non-Christians putting out in their yards signs that say, credo. Sorry, they're English. We believe. We believe in this. Anytime you begin to say, we believe, you have a doctrine. Paul warned them in Acts chapter 20, be on your guard against false prophets, against these ravenous wolves, against these false ideologies. And Paul commends, excuse me, John commends them for committing themselves to solid, orthodox doctrine. You've held firm to the truth. Now notice he doesn't say, you hate the Nicolaitans, but you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. How do we in a time of so much polarization, in a time of so much of a cancel culture from the right and the left, how can we learn like this church to hate false ideologies while loving and serving those people who hold those ideologies? So he commends them for their commitment to doctrine. He commends them for their faithfulness. You've been faithful, you've been faithful, you've been faithful, you've not grown weary and given up. But he says, then comes the correction. I have this against you. I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. In the midst of all of your suffering and your desire for holiness and your love of doctrine and the truth and your faithfulness and your hard work, you have abandoned your first love. Literally what he's saying here is, this word for abandoned is, you have left or you have dismissed or you have sent away your first love. You've lost your intimacy with Jesus. You love the truth, but it's cold orthodoxy. You suffer, but that suffering is turning you inward and making you bitter. You have a holiness, but it's, it's dead, it's lifeless, it's hollow, it's legalistic. You've lost your love. Now, there's, a, there's an argument, kind of a debate among scholars on if he's talking here about their love for God or if he's talking about their love for the world in terms of witnessing to the world. I actually think it's both, right? Why do we have to choose? If you, if you love God, you love your neighbor. If you love your neighbor, you love God. There's no false dichotomy there. So in, in losing their intimacy, they were not loving others well. There's no warmth to their relationship with Jesus. The, the fire had gone out of the truth. And we need both, as the Puritans used to say, light and heat. If we're gonna love God and love our neighbors well. See, this metaphor um, John is drawing on is, is an old idea in the Bible. I mean, all throughout the apocalyptic prophetic literature of the Old Testament, Israel, God's people, is compared to a bride. A bride who's left their first love. Jeremiah chapter two, one of the great examples of that here in this passage, God says to the prophet Jeremiah, to the people of Israel, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love that you had for me as a bride. God is pictured here as the groom and his people as his bride. How you followed me in the wilderness. You trusted me. You loved me in a land not sown. For my people have committed two evils, verse 13. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. You've left your first love. I mean, this happens all the time in marriage. I mean, you see this so much. People get married and there's the fire of love. All of the feelings and the emotions and the sentiments and the commitment and the loyalty and the, I mean, it's like, I love doing weddings. 
And, and it's hard not to get cynical the older you get when you do weddings with 20-somethings who are like, oh, just puppy eyes. Look, I just want to stare into your soul. And they have these long, you know, things that they're writing out, these commitments to each other. I love the vows. But I, part of me gets cynical and is like, yeah, let's see how you feel in like five hours or five weeks or five years. That speaks more about me than it does about them. But you have children and, and you get busy doing life. You're doing all the right things. And then one day you realize there's no love between you. That's why so many people in their 50s and 60s after their children leave the home, leave each other. It's not that they all of a sudden left each other. It's that there's the realization of we left a long time ago. The love grown, has grown cold. This is what he's speaking about here. You've left your first love. The warmth that you had when you first loved Jesus. When everything was beautiful, everything was simple, everything was clean, everything was pure, everything just felt good. When you sang and you worshiped and you came to church and you did Bible study and you prayed hours on end, it's gone. It's a good reminder to us how easy it is even for the best churches to lose their passion for Jesus. I mean, what he's saying here is you, you've stopped loving me and you've, you've started loving other things. You, you've, you've put your love into these, what he calls broken, Jeremiah calls broken cisterns. You've substituted loving Jesus for these other things. And these things don't yield the things you think they're gonna yield. The broken cisterns, some of the things we see in the church of Ephesus that are very instructive for us, some of these broken cisterns. Gifted leadership is no protector of the passion of Jesus. You can have amazing pastors, amazing leaders. You can be so gifted and so competent and yet still fall away from your first love. We, we rail on abusive pastors and we should. We rail on, a, on, on leadership that is fake and we should. But I don't care how good and godly your leadership is. I mean, this church was founded by the Apostle Paul. He spent more time in Ephesus than any other church, two and a half years teaching every day in this church. When he left, he passed this church off. He was run out of town. Who did he pass this church off to? Another guy you may have heard of named Timothy. Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus for years. After Timothy left and Aquila and Priscilla were there, do you know who came next? John, the apostle John, most people believe. Gifted leadership is no protector of passion for Jesus. Miraculous power is no substitute for love for Jesus. And they had all kinds of miracles, charismatic things happening. I mean, even to the point where if Paul touched a, a handkerchief and it touched somebody else, they would be miraculously healed. I mean, the kind of charismatic we long for in the church. They experienced it and they're still in decline. Sound doctrine is no, is no protector by itself of love for Jesus. Doctrine's good, but doctrine become, can become hollow, can become cold. I mean, this church took Paul's words seriously about false prophets, false teachers, loving truth. I mean, when we can love truth and love truth, I mean, have you ever been in this kind of church? This kind of small group, we love truth, we love doctrine. We're spending 20 and 30 and 40 weeks reading systematic theology texts. And great, hallelujah, that's great. But that becomes the goal is to analyze God. We're so focused on truth, we forget the God who gives us that truth so we might know him better. 
Sound doctrine doesn't protect us. Missional impact in and of itself. We talk a lot about in nonprofit world about impact. We want to have missional impact, right? This church had impact. In Acts 19, the sorcerers burned their books. Millions of dollars worth of books. People turned away from cultic paganism to Jesus, burned their books. It shifted the socioeconomic status of the city, literally turned the city upside down. There was a riot because so many of the cult leaders were losing money and business. I mean, imagine putting the payday loan centers out of business in our community because Jesus was doing such powerful work. We no longer need to exploit people. The gospel goes out, Paul says, to the entire region. I mean, imagine the gospel going out from these churches out and it covers the Midwest and there is a movement of the gospel. And yet still, they're not protected from decline. How does that happen? How do, we, how do we lose our first love? I mean, there's lots of things we could talk about here. We could talk about busyness and the busyness of churches that like to keep themselves busy with programs. They're activists, man. They're out in the community. They're serving the poor. They're loving social justice. They're protesting and standing in solidarity with the marginalized. But we can get busy, so busy, with, that we get distracted from loving Jesus in the process. We can get bored with God while we're out there holding signs in the name of God. Busyness and distraction. Um, we could talk about shift in focus, right? Like, again, where the, 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 the focus becomes knowing things about God instead of being known by God. Mastering truth instead of being mastered by truth. A- analysis instead of contemplation. Duty instead of delight. I mean, it's so subtle. But we all know this, and we've heard this used in in relationship to like sea travel. Just a degree in the wrong direction is the difference between the North Pole and the South Pole (laughs) for a couple degrees. One of the things I think we also see um, is suffering can do this to us. Suffering can make our love for God and others grow cold. Marva Don, one of my favorite authors, a writer who was a sufferer herself. She, she wrote kind of a devotional commentary in the book of Revelation, and she talks about her journey and her struggle. She had chronic pain, partial blindness, diabetes, what she called shattered feet. She's writing this book uh, while pursuing a PhD as a single woman at the University of Notre Dame, and she's talking about her struggles, and she said, suffering has this way of, of kind of turning us inward on ourselves. We get self-preoccupied with our own pain, And it's hard to love people. It's hard not to grow bitter. She says it it can make us inward turned. And if you've ever suffered deeply, you know the temptation to get inward turned. It's hard to be gracious. It's hard to love when you're experiencing, in her case, so much chronic pain. Maybe for you it's emotional pain, mental pain, physiological pain. And so like Jesus, I think sometimes... Our first response to people in pain needs to be not hammering away at their sin, but empathizing with their suffering. We, like this church, are sinners and sufferers. And we need to hold that intention, but recognize sometimes suffering can make us grow cold. And then lastly, there's just a developmental normalcy to this, I think, that we need to keep in mind, right? Like this happens in some ways, this decline 
is a normal part of life. You think about human development, right? We start out in our teenage years and young adult years, lots of energy and vitality. If, if you're experiencing normal development, you get up into your 30s and 40s, or am I right now, you start to get tired a lot easier and things begin to break down and you start to experience pain, right? And, and you begin to enter into decline. This is what we call like a midlife crisis. And there's an opportunity in that decline cycle for renewal or you can continue to decline and eventually you, you die. We see this, I have a picture of this, uh, organizational development, if you're familiar with organizational life cycles. Some of you are, some of you don't care. But if you could read this, the, I couldn't find uh, one with the, the type font very big, but uh, you, you go from startup to adolescence to prime to maturity, and then you get over the hill, and every organization faces these moments, these inflection points, these pivot points, where you begin to go into decline. The, the dream dies, and it gives way to bureaucracy and aristocracy, and what uh, Ichak Adize, uh, an organizational life cycle expert, just calls the beginning of the end. And then, eventually, your business dies. Faith development theories even show us the same thing, that people go through this as a normal part of their faith development. Next slide. In the, in the book, The Critical Journey, um, we have that, that uh, faith journey slide. Well, I'll, I'll talk about it. The, the Critical Journey, they talk about the same thing, that we start out life with a sense of awe and wonder with God. And, and then we get productive and we get in a community and we experience a sense of belonging. This is usually like early stage of Christianity, stage one. We get so excited, we're involved in the church, we're using our gifts, and then one day we wake up and we're like, woe is me. What, like, why, why am I doing this? Why am I going to church? Why am I reading my Bible? It's all pointless. And we, we start to love the book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless. Everything's meaningless. And we hit what John of the Cross, the, the old Spanish mystic, calls the wall and the dark night of the soul and the senses. Like everybody goes through that. And so in some sense, it's normal. And the key when we meet these moments, we realize we've lost our first love is to listen to the voice of the Spirit and to respond, to recognize that these are invitations to renewal, that we need to experience revival. And all kinds of different movements have language for this. The reformers in the Protestant Reformation used to say, we need to always be reforming. St. Benedict and the monastic movement, they had, they had a, a vow of ongoing renewal. There was this commitment to always being open to change, always being open to transformation, always seeing these invitations as not invitations to cynicism and naivete, but rather to go deeper in our life with God and to experience the renewal that he has for us. And that's the warning that Jesus has for the church here. If you don't pay attention, if you don't realize you've lost your first love, I will come and I will remove your lampstand. Removing lampstand, the, the lampstands were uh, symbolic of the churches. What he's saying is, I'm gonna take the light away from you. I'm gonna take the energy away from you. I'm gonna take the motivation away from you. I'm gonna take your credibility away. Now, this is crazy. We're not talking about end times judgment. We're talking about in human history, Jesus comes at times and takes out churches who don't stay faithful to him, who don't return to the first love. I wonder if some of what we're experiencing right now culturally isn't Jesus coming and removing lampstands from some churches. Some pruning of the church. This is the normal rhythm of the church. Churches have this tendency and, and, and groups of churches have this tendency to go from being a movement to being a monument, erecting Monuments to the past and looking backwards in nostalgia. Wasn't it great when X, Y, and Z happened? 
to them becoming museums. We see lots of those around our city. To mausoleums. Jesus says, don't let that be your church. The story of the church in the West is not just one of decline and death. If you're believing that narrative about the church, you're wrong. The church didn't start at a high point and is now declining to death. The church goes through ups and downs and waxes and wanes. It's like a tide, one revivalist says, that goes out at times and comes back at times. And so we need to see this as an invitation, right? Like just because the church isn't growing in America doesn't mean it's not growing around the world. The fastest growing churches in the world, by the, by the way, are not in the West. They're in the global South. Right now, it's in Iran. The church is exploding in Iran in a way that we can't even fathom in America. So there's this invitation, we close here, to renewal. There's this invitation to revival, renewal. That's what he says here, the invitation of the Spirit. Listen to this, he says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent, twice he says that, and return. Do the works you did at first. This is an invitation to revival. Remember how far you've fallen. The word fallen in the Bible is usually a reference to the narrative arc of the demonically proud. Satan falls from great heights. That book's used throughout the book of Revelation. That word's used throughout the book of Revelation. You've fallen from a great height. You've fallen from your first love. So repent. Turn away from a loveless, dead, self-righteous way of doing church and turn back to Jesus. Do the works you did at first. This is all revival language. Revival could be defined quite simply. A pastor friend of mine, John Stark, says it like this. It's seeking old realities with new vitality. Seeking old realities with new vitalities. Do the works you did. What he's saying here is return to those spiritual practices. Return to those habits that put you in the way of experiencing the love of God. He's not saying that those things in and of themselves have power. They don't. Like, we, we love things like singing and prayer and study and serving others and fasting. These are good things. But apart from the presence and power of God, they have no ability to save. But done in the presence of God with an eye fixed on Jesus and a heart open to the love of God, absolutely, this is the way that we return. This is the way that we deepen. He's not saying that those things are wrong. He's just saying you haven't let it go deep enough into the core of your being. So it's a call to what C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity calls deeper thrills with God. The, as the initial thrills, just like a marriage, the initial thrills give way and you hang in there and you continue to date and you continue to confess your sins and you continue to love each other and you continue to go on vacations together. You continue to be vulnerable together. Over time, C.S. Lewis says, a great Christian marriage does away with the cheap, easy, superficial thrills and gives way to the deeper thrills of being married for 50 years and 60 years and 70 years. It's a kind of second naivete, not that we return to the childishness of our faith, but we return, we return to a childlike faith, a second naivete with all of the experiences that we have now. We lay those before God and we allow him to take us deeper in our love for him. And now singing takes on a different character. Worship takes on a different character. Reading takes on a different character. We are able to go deeper into the love of God. An experience renewal. And that's the promise at the end. To the one who conquers, I will give the tree of life to eat from. That, my friends, 
is a reference to Genesis. Jesus walking among the lampstands, walking in the Garden of Eden. He says, just as God walked with Adam and Eve, I will be with you. You will be in my presence. I will give you my power. I walk among the churches. I am actively involved. Even in your lovelessness, I've not abandoned you. I live in the mess. I have given you grace as you suffer. I'm giving you grace as you falter, as you fail, as you turn away from me. I am here. Come back to me, he says. The tree of life at the end of the book of Revelation is in the New Jerusalem. It's the centerpiece of the New Jerusalem. It is the place of the presence of God. That's what Jesus is inviting us to, to experience again love for him. He is the source. He is the destiny of our hard work. He is the source. He is the goal of our perseverance and suffering, of our faithfulness, of our doctrine. Let all of these things lead us back to him. It is only in his presence and his power as we return to these works again, we experience a fresh sense of his grace. So I just want to encourage you. We're going to go to communion. You go ahead and put your stuff away. I want to encourage you as you go to communion to ask yourself that question. Do you resonate with this lovelessness? Do you find yourself drifting, getting distracted, bored, suffering, losing heart, just getting so pragmatic with life that life is about techniques and achievement, accomplishment and success and prosperity, that you've lost a sense of the felt presence of God? There's this invitation to return, and in the words of the great English poet T.S. Eliot, to, in all of our explorations, we arrive at the end and we find that we're at the beginning again. We, we come to the end of that and we find that we're back at the beginning with God again, and we recover a sense of wonder and awe with God. Do you resonate with that? Have you lost your first love? Have we, as a church full of gifted, competent people, some, like, some evidences of the hard work and the perseverance and suffering, have we lost our first love? I wanna encourage you two things, two practices that I think you could engage this week. One is you can write out your story. Spend some time remembering. What was it like when you first came to know Jesus? Like, do you spend time remembering that? Take some time to write that out and reflect on the goodness of God, the love of God, how he saved you, how he delivered you from idolatry, I delivered you, what it was like to be lonely and anxious and fearful and to find hope in Jesus. Remember that. And then discern what are some spiritual practices and habits that may put you in the way of experiencing revival. We can't force revival, we can't force renewal, but we can put ourselves in the path of it. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's solitude. Maybe it's just worshiping and yelling at the top of your lungs, screaming out to God through tears. I don't know what it means for you. But let's just take some time to reflect and let's ask ourselves that question as we come to communion. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this invitation to experience your grace again, a fresh encounter with your love. God, may we hear these words and heed these words as not just for a church a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, but to hear these words as words to us to not in the midst of our energetic service, our hard work, our faithfulness, our love for doctrine to forget not to dismiss our first love. That this church, that our lives are all about Jesus. So God, give us a new, a renewed passion for you. Something only your spirit can do, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.